Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We've been talking about the Shema, and last time we talked about putting together the three paragraphs. I received some mail in my, it'll be, it's like a podcast. I'll read the mail um, <laughs> that we received, that our show has received. No, so I got a couple of things. Um, Bert, who is our uh, tech, major uh, technical expert, which makes sure that we're um, on the web along with, um, along with Norm, Bert and Norm, thank you. So Bert uh, wrote that the late great Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan has a book just about the mystical meaning of tzitzit. I've never seen that one. I have a bunch of his books, but not that one. So I'm pointing that out. Ari, Rabbi Ari Kaplan, Zichron Olivracha, was a, a great transmitter and translator, translator of Hasidism and Hasidic concepts and Kabbalistic concepts into English. He wrote mostly in the uh, 70s and died too young, but he has great books about Jewish meditation, all sorts of things. So apparently he has a book on the mystical meaning of tzitzit. Um, several people wrote in about tefillin. You know, tefillin we have more of from the archaeological record because tefillin boxes are made of leather. So they're less, although organic, they're <clears throat> less perishable than whatever um, fringes and uh, taluses may have been made from. So uh, there are some people did a little research and it's easier to find stuff on tefillin, you know, amulets that were worn from ancient times. And we have actually, you know, tefillin from the Bar Kokhba rebellion that have been dug up and even some from earlier. But um, as far as I know, not taluses. Uh Michael B., our fellow congregant, I'll protect everyone's confidentiality because I don't have their permission to. Uh, so um, I'm just going to share a couple of lines that he wrote about his putting together the Shema. Uh, we didn't talk yet about the Shema in the context of the blessings around the Shema. We'll get to that eventually once we finish the third blessing when we get to that. So, but he says that the Paragraph before is God loves, loves us. Vehavta puts us in loving relationship with God reciprocally. Vayayim Shema, second paragraph, accepting obligations that come in close loving relationships. And then the third parsha, Parshat Tzitzit, gives us the guidelines um, for how to stay on the straight and narrow path with Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus as a reminder of who God is and what God does for us. Um, and he had more thoughts about that, but that's what I'm going to share about it. So people have been thinking, reflecting, doing some research. Um, keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> um, one thing that I just want to mention that we're not going to talk about because it takes us um, further afield than I would like. Um, but the fact that we're not addressing it doesn't mean that I think it's unimportant is, so I just want to sort of, drop it in, mention it, and say we're not going to deal with it. Um, the fact that historically tefillin and tzitzit um, are seen as mitzvot for men, not for women, uh, up until relatively recently, the last few decades, um, that wasn't always 100% true. So there are there's stuff in the halakha about may 
it's framed in the halakha as may women wear tzitzit or tefillin, not are they required to. And there are various anecdotal accounts throughout Jewish history of women who did wear tefillin and or tzitzit. Midrash says that Michal, Saul's daughter, who was married to King David, wore tefillin. And there's uh, medieval debates about whether women may wear tefillin or not. And if they do, whether they should say the bracha or not. Um, and then, of course, in contemporary times, in the egalitarian movements, um, this has been opened up. And, of course, it raises the question of, is it permissibility for women to wear talit and tefillin? Although, if you're, tr- I just want to point out, theoretically, if you're truly egalitarian and halachic, then you might conclude that women are obligated to wear talit and tefillin, which then means creating a whole new category of people who, if we want to speak in classical terms, are potentially sinning if they don't wear talit and tefillin, right? So that's a complicated question. Um, And I just want to sort of raise it and say that all that is very interesting. And if people are more interested in it, you should ask uh, Rabbi Klickfeld or Rabbi Chorney to offer a class in that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a posaic halachic decisor or halachic historian, so that's not going to be my bailiwick. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in the question. It's very interesting. I want to raise it and drop it in there, but we are not going to talk about it much more than I already just talked about it. Okay? So I mentioned that. There's something actually I didn't know in doing the research um, is that apparently the Satmar Rebbe's I don't know if this is true, apocryphal. The Satmar Rebbe's wife, when she died and then was being prepared for burial, was found to be wearing a talit katan, the tzitzit undershirt, mm-hmm. under her garments. Right. So that's interesting. Right. So this question of. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I found that in a Wikipedia article, and I'm sure there's much more about that. So we have from Michal Bat Shaul, right, wearing tefillin in the Midrash, all the way to the Satmar Rebbe's wife, uh, privately, you know, unbeknownst to the public, wearing a talit katan um, as part of her undergarments. So there's a whole interesting history there, and we could certainly talk about that in the context of the contemporary egalitarian movements. And that would be a whole series of class sessions, which is not my bailiwick, because our bailiwick here is trying to uh, understand, appreciate, and intensify our davening experience by understanding the Sidur. Okay, so what I am going to do today is, um, to, do I have to be a, ho- a co-host to screen share? Probably, let me do that for Could you. you make me a co-host? Sure. So I said we're going to look at, we'll do that this week and next week. We're going to look at some of the halachic sources about what you do during Shema. I call it the Shema choreography, but it's not really choreography because you don't stand or dance or anything like that. But it's the ritual enaction of the physical enacting of the Shema. Let me get to that screen. Do you see words? Yes. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, Actually, I'm going to get rid of screen share for a moment because I'm going to say first, because you're going to start reading, but I want to say first what we're um, talking about. 
Okay, so we're going to read the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, uh, we're going to read text from the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is accepted for the last few centuries as the by most observant Jews as the authoritative code of Jewish law. It's from the 1500s. Let me say a little bit about that. So Jewish halacha or law develops as sort of, I'm going to call it alternating waves of expansion and codification. So there's a lot of stuff floating around and someone says there's too many rules and we can't find things and I'm going to have to write it down and put it in one place so that people can find it. So then some authority writes a law code. And of course, writing a law code implies there are certain questions. How does that authority decide? How do they communicate it? Do they say what the sources are of the law? Do they just put, you know, the final opinion? Because if the purpose of codification is simplification, then, you know, if you put the whole history, there's six different opinions, and I tell you what I think is the correct answer, that takes up a lot of space. And part of the effort of codification is simplification and standardization and centralization. And a law code writer has to decide how do they organize their law code? What's the organizational structure? Okay. And then as soon as something is written, uh, two things happen. First of all, there's always criticism of it. Okay. Um, Other authorities say, how did you make the decision? There's such a proliferation of customs and you decided one thing and this oversimplifies. Plus um, you took away the quote unquote right of local rabbis to make decisions based on studying the sources when you say this is the answer. So there's always criticisms uh, and commentaries. And then of course, in the next couple of hundred years, more stuff happens that raises new questions like can electricity be used on Shabbat or uh, are turkeys kosher? That's relevant to this week, Thanksgiving, if you're in this country, listening in this country, uh, right? As you probably know, um, in the Torah, there are principles given for whether land animals are kosher or not, split hooves and chew their cud. And there are principles given for whether fish are kosher or not, fins and scales, but there are no principles given for birds. It's just a list of forbidden birds, right? So then when there's a new bird, people said, well, we don't know what category it falls into. So there was halachic debate about whether turkey was kosher or not. Um, Because Ashkenazim basically had never seen turkeys before because it was not part of the world of uh, Eastern Europe and Central Europe. So anyway, so then questions arise like electricity or turkeys or, you know, all sorts of other things. And so there's a proliferation of opinions. And then at a certain point, someone says, oh, there's too much and we've got to codify. Okay, so we have codification and expansion and alternating waves. You can actually say this starts with the Torah, right? The Torah contains in it sort of three law codes, the, the, what's called the covenant code in Shemot chapter, right after the 10 commandments, I think 20 to 22. Um, and then there's the holiness code in the middle of Vayikra. Uh, and then there's uh, the covenant at Moab in um, Sefer Dvarim, Deuteronomy. So we have three different law codes that are brought together in the Torah. Sometimes they conflict with each other. Then we have the development of, as soon as the Torah is written, then there's questions about things that aren't in the Torah. So we have the development of the oral Torah, which comes to be codified as the Mishnah. Although traditionally it was said that the oral Torah was given at Sinai also along with the written Torah. But most historically conscious 
scholars wouldn't agree with that statement. They would say that the oral Torah developed over centuries. Then it's codified in the Mishnah, 200. So the people who are the authorities of the Mishnah, they're called the Tanaim. They lived around the year zero to 200, roughly speaking, let's say from the time of Hillel to the time of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was the codifier of the Mishnah. But we know that there's lots of Tanaitic material that's not in the Mishnah. It's either collected in another book called the Tosefta, or it's floating around in different pieces called the Baraitas in the Talmud, which means it's an example of the codifier makes choices about what's in and what's out, what's authoritative and what's not. Um, and obviously they're going to be accepted only if they are seen as someone who is seen as an authority by the community. Otherwise, the community will say, well, some person just wrote a book, but we don't consider it you know, saying what their opinion is, but we don't consider them authoritative. So the Shulchan Aruch is one such law code, and it's the one which is seen to be uh, most authoritative in binding for the last several hundred years. It was written in the middle of the 1500s by Rabbi Yosef Karo in Tzfat. He was Sephardi. The Shulchan Aruch <clears throat> reached European lands, and another rabbi called the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, wrote a, I don't want to say a commentary on it, he wrote supplementary notes to it, where Ashkenazi practice differed from Sephardi practice. Apparently, he was going to write a law code, but before he got to do that, the Shulchan Aruch reached his hands. He thought it was pretty good, and he just thought it should be supplemented uh, meaning he, he accepted the uh, Shulchan Aruch by Rabbi Yosef Karo, but thought there are things where Ashkenazi practice differs from Sephardi, and he put interstitial notes saying where that was. And of course, so this is all in the 1500s, and the last 500 years, there have been other subsequent law codes, but the Shulchan Aruch is still seen as being uh, sort of the most authoritative one. So the thing that we're going to do, <clears throat> everything is a choice. Is that, is that the Mishnah Brura? The Mishnah Brura is, a, is a, another law code which is written in the format of a commentary to the Shulchan Aruch, meaning it goes along with the Shulchan Aruch, and it is intended to be a law code which simplifies the next uh, 300 to 350 years of halachic material that came after the Shulchan Aruch. Right. So um, you can buy books, which are called the Mishnah Brura. And if you buy a traditional Mishnah Brura, it usually has the Shulchan Aruch with the Mishnah Brura written as a commentary on it. But the Mishnah Brura is really a subsequent and later law code, which is seen by many to be as authoritative in sort of yeshivish Eastern European circles. But again, anytime there's a law code, it says this, usually the codifier has the intention. The intention is, I want to make it simple for people by telling them that this is the rule. And that's what raises the criticism, because there were five other mean hagim beforehand, and the codifier decided which was the authoritative one. So by the way, even the Shulchan Aruch itself, the Shulchan Aruch is an abridged work of the much bigger halachic work by Rabbi Yosef Karo called the Beit Yosef, in which he tried to collect all the opinions and tell you his opinion. But the Shulchan Aruch leaves out all the backstory and just says, here is the rule. So the Shulchan Aruch is a 
law code itself is a law code, which is a digest of the bigger halachic work written by the same author. By the way, the Ramaz notes, the Ashkenazi notes, which are called the Mapa. Shulchan Aruch means the set table and Mapa means the tablecloth. So Rabbi Moshe Israel uses um, glosses or notes on the Shulchan Aruch to Ashkenazify it are also just an abridgment of his much larger halachic work that he had written previously. Everyone with me? It's confusing. So bottom line is just, this is just seen in much of the Jewish world as the authoritative code of Jewish law from the 1500s. Um, so that's what we're going to be reading this week and next week. I'm going to go back to my screen. Okay, now the choice we're making, by the way, is a traditional Shulchan Aruch looks like the Talmud, right? In what's called the Tzurat Hadaf, the uh, shape of the page, which means the typical Jewish way of printing holy books, which means there's a central text and then there are commentaries around it, right? Everyone knows what that looks like. Everyone has that in their head. So if I opened up for you a page of the Shulchan Aruch and I opened up for you a page of the Talmud and you couldn't read Hebrew and you didn't recognize them for what they were, you would say they look kind of similar to me because it's in a similar printing format, which has come to be sort of the traditional Jewish printing format for holy books. Um, but if we had that, we wouldn't have any English. And so we have the great resource of Safaria, which is phenomenal, which has the English translation, but then we lose the benefit of the commentaries around the Shulchan Aruch and the look and feel of the original. But that's what we're going to do so that we have English. Ready? So we're in Shulchan Aruch, which has four divisions. This is the first division called Orach Chaim. And, uh, and by the way, Safaria, it's free. It's online. Anyone can study this. Anyone can download this. And it's the you know, massive bookshelf of the Jewish library, which they keep adding more things to, much of it with English translation. It's a great resource. And it has cool things like if I click on that, you know, then I have, oh, what other kind of commentaries or things do I have on that section? Mm. Oh, someone made a teaching source sheet in which they include that um, line or I can look up 26 web pages which mention this halakha, right? So Safaria, there's 21 commentaries. They're in Hebrew and in English. So Safaria is like a great resource. Let me see if I can I want to try to make that go away. And you can and should contribute. I'm going to make it go away. There we go. Made it go away. Let me get you back so I can see you. Okay. So uh, chapter 60. So we're near the end of chapter 60. We're going to do the last halacha, halacha five. You can, can you see my cursor when I do screen share? Yes. Okay. So hakorei shma v'lo kivein bilibo b'pasuk rishon. If one recites the shema, but did not have intention in their heart, kavana, this word kavana, in their mind, b'pasuk rishon, in the first verse, shehu, shema Yisrael, tells you what the first verse is, lo yatsa yedei chovato, that person did not fulfill their obligation. What's the obligation? To say the Shema. Where do, we, where do we have that obligation from? The Torah, which says you're supposed to recite these words every morning and every night. Okay? So that is the source of the mitzvah to recite the Shema. It is an obligation. And 
the Shulchan Aruch says, if you recite the first verse without kavanah, meaning you're on autopilot and thinking about breakfast, you realize afterwards, I didn't concentrate and focus for the first verse. You have not fulfilled your obligation to recite the Shema, which means what should you do? Although he doesn't say that. What should you do if you haven't fulfilled your obligation? What do you think? Recite it again. Recite it again with kavanah. Correct. Vehasha'ar, but the remainder, which means everything after the first verse, imlo kivain libo. If you did not have kavanah, kavanah means I am doing this for purposes of fulfilling my mitzvah and I'm thinking about what the words mean. Okay? If you didn't have kavanah, afilu hayakore batora o magia haparshiota elu. Even if you were simply reading Torah, studying Torah, or you were actually checking the text of these sections, like if you were a scribe and you were checking this text in the Torah, meaning you weren't thinking about the words, you weren't thinking, I am doing this to fulfill the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema. I'm just like checking the text of it. Bit-o-not Kriyat Shema, at the time of Kriyat Shema, meaning I'm doing that at, at 7.45 in the morning, 7.50 in the morning, while the rest of the congregation is saying the Shema, right? So I read the Shema at the correct time, even without intention that I was doing the mitzvah, nor was I actually thinking about the meaning of the words, yatsah. He, that person has fulfilled their obligation. We, in, in yeshivish English, we say to be yotze, right? To be yotze, which means is an abbreviation of yatsa yidei chovato, which means you have fulfilled your obligation. It's an idiom. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you'll say yatsa means to go out, right? So yatsa yidei chovato means you have gone out of your obligation, meaning you fulfilled your obligation. You, or as we say in English, you check the box, okay? Um, but only if you had kavanah for the first verse. So in other words, this is saying the first verse of the Shema requires kavanah in a way that the rest of the Shema does not. Now, should you have kavanah for all of your davening, if you ask the author of the Shulchan Aruch? Of course you should, right? Should you have kavanah for all the mitzvot you do? Of course you should. If I... Um, if I lit Shabbat candles and I didn't have kavanah, do I need to say the bracha again? No. Okay, there are only certain brachot which require kavanah. All right? And for, so this, this is a way of saying that although Shema and Ve'ahavta in Sefer Dvarim, in Deuteronomy, is all one paragraph, okay, now we're saying that in your davening, the first line of this paragraph is seen as, as somehow separate and different. I will put it in air quotes, more important, okay? And therefore, it requires more intense focus and concentration than the rest of the Shema, such that if you did not have focus and concentration for the rest of the Shema, you're okay and you don't have to go back but the first line has to have kavanah. Now that makes sense, right? We talked at length about the, the, the meaning of the line. That, that's not an arbitrary idea. It kind of makes sense because that first line is the core thing. 
right? And it's the line that, you know, you're supposed to say on your deathbed. You're supposed to say when you're being martyred, right? Rabbi Akiva, when he was being martyred, what does the Gemara say? He didn't say Shman Vehavta, right? All he had to say is the one line, all those medieval martyrs. They didn't have to say the first paragraph, right? They just said the first line. Terry. Sorry, I want to say one more sentence, Terry. And that is, why is that? That's because the, the tradition was the first line is sort of theologically the headline and the sort of major statement of faith in a way more so than the rest of the first paragraph. So this halakha embodies that. Now, Terry. Avi, I'd be interested in a discussion now or at another time at what the other prayers with which we are required kavanah. Great question at another time. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. In brief, we will talk about special kavanah. I will give you a short answer. We will talk about special kavanah in two places, which are the two places that the Shulchan Aruch highlights. This is one of them. And the other is the first the whole entire first blessing of the Amida through Magain Avraham. Okay, thank you. Those are two prayers that are said, if you didn't have Kavanah, you you might have to go back and say it again. It has to have Kavanah. It can't be on autopilot, right? Okay. By the way, I mean, the Halakha recognizes it would be really hard to have Kavanah for every word of your davening. It would take you hours, okay? So, So the Halakha... Acknowledge, says you should have kavanah, but acknowledges that we are on autopilot a lot of the times when we do mitzvot. But there are certain things where you have to stop and say, no, 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 I can't be on autopilot. This requires kavanah, right? So the first line of the Shema. Okay, next uh, chapter, chapter 61. By the way, um, this is how the Shulchan Aruch is written. The, the first line in big Hebrew letters is the, is the um, chapter heading. So the chapter heading of chapter 61 is Din Kamatsarich Litatek Ulechavain Bekriachma. This is the rule, the laws of how much you need to be precise and have kavanah in the recitation of Shema. Ubo Kaf Vav Seifin. And it has 26 paragraphs. We're not going to read all of them. We're just going to do highlights. Okay? One, Yikra Kriachma Bekavanah. You have to read. You have to recite the Shema with Kavanah. Be'ema uvi'ir'ah b'retet v'ziah. Right? Reverence, fear, trembling, and trembling. It's basically what that means. Okay? Meaning awe. Meaning uh, we're saying, remember, go back to all our discussions that we had about what does that first paragraph mean? Commitment to God. Commitment to the sovereign. Right? Contemplating that there's one fundamental unity underlying the whole universe, all that stuff that we said when we had our, you know, couple of weeks of discussions about what does the first line mean? So like, if you really have Kavanah, you take this seriously, right? I am making a statement about my commitment to that which I see or who I see as the fundamental underlying authority and unity of the universe. That's pretty weighty. So it says you have to treat that with weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. Does the custom of shuffling uh, arise as a, a means of showing that we are shaking and trembling, or is it not related? Uh, that's a good one. I don't know. We'd have a, I need a little history of early chassidut, so maybe, 
Don't know the answer to it. <clears throat> we can do research into the history of early Hasidut, and is that why we shuckle? I don't know. But but there's no special shuckling for the first paragraph. Right. I do want to say that. Okay. Avi? Uh, yeah. Vered? Uh, yeah, sorry. I always read <clears throat> this word, Vizia. Yeah. A little bit differently because my knowledge, based on my knowledge, that really this word means sweating when you're sweating, but it doesn't mean that you have to sweat. But when you sweat, you work hard. You did something yeah. really, yeah. You, you put all your force in it. Yeah. So I don't translate it shaking and trembling, but yeah. more shaking is laboring. Laboring. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. And I, and we have to think of is like Lazia and, and Zava. Are they related? Are they different Shorashim? I'm not quite sure. So good question. Let's put, let's, let's park it on the back burner for now, but thank you. Okay. Asher Anochi Mitzavcha Hayom. I'm in paragraph two. Asher Anochi Mitzavcha Hayom. Lomar. This means that little snippet from the next verse, right? Means, Bechol Yom Every day, these words should seem to you, should, you should experience them as new. Velo kemi shikvar shama'oto harbei pa'amim, not like someone who's heard it so many times, she'eno chavivetzlo, who does not value or love these words. So what is the Shulchan Aruch saying here? It's sort of, it's saying the theoretical, philosophical underpinning of why you're supposed to read the Shema in a particular way is because when you read the passage from Devarim, from Deuteronomy, saying these words which I command you today should be in your heart, it should feel to you like they are commanded today, right? Like if you you were in the army, or I don't know, in the government, and you got new orders today, you would pay a lot of attention to them, correct? Sort of like, you know, you get an instruction manual and you read it for the first time because you're learning how to use something, an appliance, or put something together. The first time you read it, you pay attention to it, right? Because you want to know how your blender is going to work, right? Very, a very, a very, not a very elevated um, analogy, okay? (laughs) So what's the Shulchan Aruch, um, I'm going to say, implicitly acknowledging (laughs) here that something that you say every day, twice a day, can easily become rote that you do on autopilot, and even worse, can actually even feel like an obligation rather than something you love to do. And the reason you're supposed to have particular kavanah is because you are supposed to experience these words as if Hashem just delivered them to you today, the way we experience, I got new orders today. I got new orders today means I got to pay attention. I got to be sharp. I've got to absorb what this means because it's going to have an impact on how I proceed on my life, right? If you were were a soldier in the army and they said new orders as of today, you would pay attention because you would know that if you violated the orders, you'd get in trouble or you would do something wrong, right? So, right, there would be a certain sense of alertness, paying attention and commitment as opposed to if, if, if the 
Sergeant says the same things that they say every day. You're not really listening and you tune out. Does that make sense? So there's a psychological thing here. Uh, hold on a second, Varad. Yeah. Uh, there's a psychological thing here about you need to experience these words as fresh. Right? Varad. I just wanted to say that explains why we have to cover our eyes. Yes. Uh, we're going to get to covering our eyes a little bit later in the Shulchan Aruch. So Verit is anticipating where the Shulchan Aruch is going to go because Shulchan Aruch is going to say talk about to enhance concentration and right. decrease distraction. That's why we cover our eyes. We're going to get to that in a few paragraphs. Okay. We're two minutes over when we ought to stop. Michael, I'll take a question or comment, and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Your analogy to army orders <clears throat> is even stronger because it, it suggests that it's a matter of life and death if you don't follow the direction. Okay, which mitzvot are. And how do, we know that, how do we know from the Shema that the mitzvot are a matter of life and death? Where do we read that? In the second paragraph. Correct. Right. Whether or not our people observe these mitzvot is a matter of life or death for our nation. Right. So good. Thanks for pulling that together. And we'll pull it together finally. And what's the... What's the reminder of that all the time? That's it, it, it. Yeah. Right, right. So, right, so that pulls our three paragraphs all together. Okay, thank you. Let us end here. Um, everyone have a, a, a good, meaningful holiday. You know, American Jews' favorite American holiday because it's <laughs> right up our alley theologically in term, and philosophically in terms of being grateful. Yes. That's what we're supposed to be doing in our davening every day, right? So we can all easily get behind Thanksgiving. So and ostensibly it originated with the pilgrims wanting to celebrate Sukkot. Exactly. So um, everyone's Thanksgiving is different this year, of course. Uh, yes. Stay healthy, but try to be grateful. One thing will not change. One thing will not change, though. There will be no Tachanun that day. No, right. No Tachanun. Um, and we'll meet at eight. Okay. Thank uh, you. And God willing, I'll see you all in class next week. Bye-bye. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org. 